Well, I've said this before, uh, but some of you really like to-do lists so much so that I know you're even guilty of adding things to your to-do list that you've already done, (laughs) just so you can have the satisfaction of checking them off. Um, You know who you are, if that's you, or you know probably if you're sitting with someone who that's true of as well. Well, I say that because this morning to encourage you and those of you, you, and all of us in a sense, um, that before the sermon has been preached, before the scriptures even been read, um, we've already done together something Paul's going to instruct us to do. And I mean that as an encouragement. It doesn't mean it's something that we check off and never do again. We have to check it off, we have to erase it and do it again. But we've already had some practice. And so as I get into this, I'll explain. But let's go ahead and begin by reading the sermon passage. This is our second to last sermon through the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. We've been going through them all summer. And in just a couple weeks, as we get to October, we're going to begin studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. They're both written by Luke. And we studied for about two, two and a half years almost off and on the Gospel of Luke. So it felt fitting. And because of just the challenges at our church right now of a uh, change of leadership and all sorts of things happening to be, to see the way the Gospel goes forward in that community and communities um, amidst what feel like a hundred hindrances. I hope that would be an encouragement to us. So that's what we're going to be doing in October. But this morning we're in 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to be reading from chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. And then I'll read that and then pray that God would be our teacher. Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you and protect you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to bow with me in prayer as we begin to study this together. Heavenly Father, even as the Apostle Paul wrote here so many years ago, pray that those prayers would still be true today, that you'd be answering them even in our midst, that prayer that our hearts would be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ for your good and for your glory. And your word even would speed ahead and be honored here among us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, years ago... I waded out into the ocean off of Cocoa Beach, and not too far, but far enough to realize the ocean is not something to be trifled with, uh, which was a new thing for me to realize having grown up in the Midwest. It wasn't an opportunity. I didn't have as many opportunities maybe as you have had across your life if you live out here in the east nearer to an ocean than I did most of my life. 
But I just I remember feeling like as I waded out there, I'm just I'm like this bobber on the end of a fishing line, just passive, wherever the, wherever the wave's going, that's that's where I was going. And it was fun, but it was also like ah, this could get scary pretty quick. A month ago, we were on vacation at Kitty Hawk, and I got another reminder of how powerful the ocean is. Now, the waves at, my, at Kitty Hawk were fairly mild that week. That is, unless you stood right where they were breaking, either on purpose or accidentally, um, which I did both. And, and, and one time, accidentally, I'm standing there, I got clocked in the side of the head, lost my glasses. I'm trying to find them in vain. <laughs> uh, and another wave uh, came and broke uh, on my back, which felt like belly flopping off the high dive, except on my back. So um, evidently it sounded as bad as it felt because Hudson, my son, yelled out, are you okay? <laughs> um, I've been thinking about those glimpses into the power of the ocean as I caught bits and pieces of the reporting on Hurricane Dorian. You know, I was on my way to pick up my daughter from volleyball I've practiced the other night and, and uh, this interview, this man was just weeping over, over the radio interview and just... Um, so he lived in one of the island countries out there. And, and you know, I, I don't know if, you know, if it's every season you hear the hurricane warnings and so you, you tend to tune them out. I don't know. But he just said he didn't make any preparations. I'd heard this t- sort of thing before. Um, and it was harrowing uh, how he stayed alive. And it turned out actually as he's almost being washed out to sea, a life vest floated up to him and it saved his life. I was at the gym and I looked up and CNN's, you know, uh, reporting and they, this massive Humvee vehicle tossed into the side of this stucco wall, like a, a home, like ha- it's halfway, like the, like you throw a marble through a Kleenex, this Humvee's like choo, into a wall. And hurricanes like Dorian cause us to reflect on warnings and evacuations and and what the right thing to do is. That's not actually why I'm bringing this up at all. I have no expertise on whether you stay or evacuate in whatever size of hurricane and storm. I, I don't know much about that. Bring it up for a different reason. All of the reporting, all that I saw, all that I heard, did cause me to think about this. That if you're going to stay in a place where a storm is coming and the winds are going to reach maybe 180 miles an hour. The highest one I saw in Dorian was 183 miles an hour. If you're going to stay in an environment like that, you better have a shelter that's sufficient to protect you in that storm. I think about that and I think about second, first and second Thessalonians. Paul has spoken of the many dangers these young believers Face, they experienced persecution for their faith. False teachers sought to undermine their hope in the gospel. The false teachers even maligned the character of the one who taught them the gospel. Paul is just a crook in an apostle's clothing, they might have said. The false teachers also tried to discourage them, saying that they had actually, and this is bizarre to us, they had missed the coming of the Lord. They'd missed the day of the Lord. The trumpet sounded and they didn't even hear it. And I picture these young believers as battered by wind and wave on the beach with salt water in their eyes. But the Lord is faithful, Paul writes in verse 3. The Lord is faithful. Paul believes that statement, or I should say the truth of that short statement, will make all the difference. They have a shelter that's big enough and strong enough to protect them. 
They have a solid rock to stand upon. I know your affliction, Paul writes. I know the false teachers who oppress you and your anxiety about the future. I know the opposition you face from faithful men. But the Lord is faithful, he writes. We sang earlier in the worship service, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That chorus is mainly drawn from the Old Testament book of Lamentations. And the context of Lamentations is a time when the people of God were in a storm. If you know anything about the context, you wouldn't call it Hurricane Dorian, but Hurricane Babylonian or something like that. And the only anchor the remnant of these, these believers in God had was fresh faithfulness from the Lord. Each morning, new mercies. Limitations chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. They, the contrast is, is set up between the people's plight and their only hope. Verses go like this. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is befret of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember this almost addressed to the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wonderings. The wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. And is bowed down within me. But this I call the mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What the author of Limitations is doing is what the author of the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is doing. And I think what the Apostle Paul is doing in the third chapter of Second Thessalonians is he saying that in an uncertain world filled with fickle and faithless men, we may be tempted to lose hope as though this tidal wave of evil could just wash us out to sea. But the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. And clinging to this truth of the great faithfulness of the Lord, rather than making these people, uh, and, and I would say us, in, uh, passive or ineffective or just kind of standoffish in ministry. Well, the Lord is faithful. He'll take care of it. Rather than causing these believers, and I would hope us, to move back from ministry, it causes them and I would say unleashes boldness to do the will of the Lord. We certainly see that in the way that these believers are called into prayer. Look, look with me again at verse 1. It's the, way that, the way that the faithfulness of the Lord unleashes their prayers. And even Paul's ability to ask for prayer. Verse 1 says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Paul encourages these young Christians to pray and pray bold and big prayers. And so a few, few things here I find interesting. First note that Paul doesn't just tell them to pray. Okay, you pray. He actually requests for prayer. Think about that. Paul requests prayer. We can wrongly assume that what it means to be a spiritual leader is to be the one who doesn't need to ask for prayer. Spiritual leaders, we think, are those who pray for us. 
And they do. We do. Paul does pray for them in verse 5 and several other places in this letter. But let me ask you a question. Which is more comfortable for you? To ask others how you might be able to pray for them? Or to go to others and ask that they might pray for you? Which is more comfortable or uncomfortable? I tend to think that people often have more time, far more time, asking for prayer for themselves because of what it implies. It implies need. It implies dependence. It implies weakness, which prick our pride. Let me know how I can pray for you. Oh, you having trouble at work and you're injured and a financial problem, and someone's antagonizing you about your faith in Jesus. Oh, I'd love to pray for that. In fact, can I pray for you right now? Oh, how can you pray for me? I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. I'll say this. If you've never asked for prayer, you might not be a Christian. Prayer doesn't save us. Asking for prayer doesn't make us right for God, but realizing your own inability is part of what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't need others in any way, shape, or form, perhaps you might be tended to think you don't need God, that he's there to just give a little more zing to what already is an exceptional life. But before you take Paul's words in this passage to be a command to pray, Like, okay, I hear this, I have to do something, I have to go pray a certain thing. Perhaps it's just a moment to pause and say, am I aware of my own need? Paul was. Because for Paul, he trusted that the Lord is is faithful. The God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as it says in the book of Exodus. And that faithfulness of the Lord allowed Paul to just be a person. I mean, yeah, he's the Apostle Paul. But he's just a person. He's a human. He's a sinner who's saved by God's grace and then made into a saint. And now he's just some guy who can then ask his friends to pray for him. I mean, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Think how humbling it would be to ask for the thing he asks these people to pray for. Why does Paul need us to pray for him? That the word would speed ahead and be honored. Maybe he's not a very good preacher. (laughs) I mean, if he was a better preacher, that would just be the result, right? You put in time on task, you have gifting, you're charismatic, and out comes honor towards the word. Maybe he's not a very good apostle after all. Paul didn't worry about that. The only thing he knew was that he was best at was being the chief of sinners. That's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. I think talking about the request for prayer. Now let's talk for a moment. What does he ask them to pray? I've said it a few times and it won't be on the screen again, but verse 1 reads like this. You can look at it in your Bible. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, I mentioned at the start that we've already obeyed one of Paul's commands before we even preached sermon, read the passage. You've already obeyed one. And, and, and the reason I say that is because as we all sang together that song, Speak, O Lord, it was the last song before the sermon. And I'll just tell you, as, as, there's a few of us here on staff, I will say, 
me and Ben, uh, and a couple others uh, in church, who that song, Speak, O Lord, is by the Gettys, has actually been around, I think, 10, 10 years at least, if not a little bit longer. But it is for us, like if you've ever seen the WWF wrestlers, and they get announced, and they come out like this, and like there's pyrotechnics. Like as pastors, this is my little pastor secret, Matt's laughing. Like as pastors, when we sing congregationally, Speak, O Lord, I feel a little bit like... Matt called me Vince McMahon, which I didn't really appreciate. Um, but anyway, there's a little bit of an excitement. Not that I'm speaking for the Lord, but that as in so much as the word is being taught, that God is speaking to us. And if you sung that song from your heart, a heart captured by grace, then you've already done some of what Paul it's commanding us to do. The last line goes, Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. I say that we've already prayed that because singing congregationally words that are um, honoring to Christ and edifying to God's people, shaping us to be more like Jesus. When we come together and sing those, we are singing them, but what we're doing is, is praying. Like when Lukeman prayed and Carolina prayed and Matt prayed and I've prayed in church, those are times we're praying. But when we're singing, when we're singing with hearts captured by grace, we are praying, in this case, that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored. In college, I helped out with the Christian ministry to fellow athletes. We met every Tuesday night at 9 a.m., or excuse me, 9 p.m., Tuesday night, 9 p.m., in uh, the room where the football team watched their game film. And uh, to me, I think about that now, that just sounds so late. A Bible study that starts at 9? What was I doing? <laughs> right. uh, Messiah College has, still has a uh, fellowship of Christian athletes. They invited me, and, and my wife came too last fall out there, and they started at 9. I was like, this is crazy. I'm so tired. <laughs> but... Uh, but in college, it didn't feel that late, I guess. So anyway, I, I, so... So back in the day, before this 9 p.m. Bible study, I'd meet with my friend Remington. Remington and I were good friends. He spoke at my wedding, our wedding, Brooke and I's wedding. And Remington and I, we'd meet um, behind the training room. Um, we'd all worked out, had weightlifting. There's this metal bench. I still remember it was like, uh, there's no back to the bench. It's just, just sitting next to the, the, the practice field, this yellow metal bench. And, and we'd go there and we'd sit. It was, we call it a prayer bench. And we'd sit there. Before the Bible study, just pray. Just pray that whoever's speaking that night, uh, that they'd speak well, that they'd preach the gospel, that the good news of Jesus would be taught clearly and compellingly. We pray that as it, the word was taught, that it'd be received well, that people, people's lives would be changed by the gospel. I think about those nights on that prayer bench with Rem. Uh, rain or shine, Sun or snow, uh, with a certain fondness. There's almost this, I don't know how to say, spiritual nostalgia. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, actually. I hope you have some things you look back on like that. But it also has caused me to reflect. What present tense, focused prayer am I doing with God's people, for God's word, to run fast and famously across the nations. I wonder in what ways the Lord's faithfulness, the love of Christ, and the steadfastness 
The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ are drawing me into a ministry of prayer. I wonder in what ways it's doing that for you. We have benches here at church. (laughs) One of them was just recently beautifully finished. So you can sit on it anytime you want. (laughs) Pray for us. Pray for the word. We even have a prayer room here at church. Would that 15 years from now, you could look back on this time with a sweetness. Think about the way that God banded you together with other pilgrims in prayer. Would that people who don't know the Lord here in Harrisburg 15 years from now could say, I'm no longer lost and confused, but, but, but I know God and I know his faithfulness because my friends prayed for me and I've been changed by the gospel. Lord can do that and more. And one final thing to note about this verse. Paul says, as happened among you. It's the last phrase there in verse 1. Paul says, pray this way, uh, that the word of God would speed ahead, be honored, as it happened among you. The word of God changed them. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote to them to encourage them the ways that he observed from the outside that, that the word of God was producing change in them. He was trying to encourage them. You know, you have to you know, go turn to them, but they're in First Thessalonians. I want to put them on the screen for you and read them to hear. This is what the Apostle Paul observed about these believers. He writes, For we know, brothers, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I'll just quick pause. The secret electing choice of the Lord, which we can't see and we can't know like how the Lord is drawing people to himself, this invisible thing becomes visible. How? Keep reading. We know that the Lord has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, what you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul is saying that when they heard the word preached, they had a hunger and a thirst for the Bible in a way they didn't have before. As Christians, they weren't content to leave Bible to a Sunday-only thing. As Christians, they didn't believe that the Bible was for the professionals or Sunday school teachers or youth pastors or scholars. The Bible was God's good news for them. It was their, their rock that they could stand on. And Paul appeals to what has happened to them that they enjoy. They, they read the Bible. Hey, this is good. This is teaching me. This is instructing me. This is helping me to order my life and to have joy in the gospel. And I'm forgiven and I'm reconciled to my creator. This is a good thing. Paul appeals to all that and says, hey, just pray that that would happen among others. Two takeaways for us. First, if you haven't tasted a passion for the word of God for yourself, pray for that. Ask God to give it to you. Go to others that you see in your life and say, I see an excitement in you about the Bible and I I see that that when you read it, you you kind of understand it and I'm struggling. Could you pray for me? And if you have tasted the goodness of the word, would you then be one who prays for that goodness and joy to sprout in others? Well, not only does the faithfulness of the Lord influence the prayers of these believers and our prayers, it also ensures 
our protection and our perseverance in the gospel. See, Paul transitions in the next few verses from prayers about the word, that had, the word speed and had to be an honor to requests for prayers for protection, anchored all in the faithfulness of the Lord. Look at these verses with me here. I'll go ahead and read just verse 1 again to, to read it kind of in flow. But here's verses 1 through 4 one more time. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. We're going to come back to that phrase. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Note, Paul contrasts here the faithfulness of the Lord with the damage caused by those who do not have faith. Know what Paul says. He says, to not have faith is not to just be neutral, at least in in this case here, that the lack of faith on some individuals actually wasn't neutral. It, It caused harm. Their lack of faith hurt people. So here's my question, though. Why did Paul need to write the phrase, for not all have faith? You think about that? Why say that? Why might saying, for not all have faith, be an encouragement to these believers? Of course, Paul, we'd say, not all have faith. Why remind us of something so obvious? I think he means to encourage them Because they felt beat down and battered by those who should have had faith. The persecution they received and the false teachers among them were those who should have had the Christian faith, but didn't. The Thessalonian Christians had been wounded by those who should be following the Lord, but aren't. It's more specific than just general affliction. And I won't tell stories I know, and I'm sure you know other stories that I don't know. But I can say that there's a special kind of wound when you're hurt by those in the church who should be Christians but aren't. They prove not to be over time. When the hands that offer communion have also abused women, there's a special kind of hurt to that. When men who stand behind pulpits eventually end up denying everything, every truth they ever preached about Christianity, that hurts people. Especially, especially if you don't have in your mind a category for the possibility that there might be those who look like Christians but aren't. It will be very confusing and troubling. J.I. Packer is a Christian theologian. He's 93. And God has used him powerfully over the decades of faithful Christian ministry. Perhaps one of J.I. Packer's most famous books is a book he wrote in the early 70s called Knowing God. It's about the attributes of God, who God is and what he's like. Uh, I heard a pastor say once, if if the Lord waits to come back 300 more years, 300 more years from now, people will still be reading Knowing God. Chapter 2 begins, he begins with this story. His first sentence is a mouthful, so I'll explain it 
in a second, but he writes this. I, this is Packer, walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. What does he mean? Having a conversation, walking along with a scholar friend, and the scholar friend says, because I trust in the gospel and all that that entails, I'm clashing with unconverted church scholars. Continues, but this scholar said to his friend Packer, but it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. Now the book is called Knowing God, so he's developing that theme with a story. But Packer goes on in that chapter to explain that why it's such an odd thing to say, I have known God and they haven't. Such an odd thing to be encouraged by. In fact, it almost feels arrogant to say. Though the Christian who said it didn't mean it with any arrogance, he said it humbly. Now in the book, Packer doesn't go on to explain the specifics of the clashes this Christian scholar had with unconverted scholars. But likely they are the same kinds of clashes you have and the same kind of clashes Christians all over the country have. There are those who claim to be Christians They don't believe you need to trust Jesus to receive forgiveness from God. There are those who claim to be Christians, but they don't believe what the Bible has to say about sexual ethics. There are those who claim to be Christians, but they don't believe Jesus actually rose from the dead or that he's coming back again. There are those who claim to be Christians, but each month month, they watch 100 hours of Fox News. And never open their Bibles or serve in a local church. Now, having one wrong view about God and the Bible, that doesn't make you not a Christian. I'm not saying that. You got one wrong view of God, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am trying to say is that if you are receiving persecution... For the way that the word of God has worked among you joyfully and produced obedient following of Jesus. And the people doing the persecution to you um, claim to be Christians but deny the most basic elements of Christianity. That what I am saying is that if that's you, Paul's words to you should be an encouragement. And I know, if I can just put in a quick parenthesis, I know one of the knocks against expositional preaching, that's the fancy name for the type of preaching we try to do here, uh, imperfectly of course, but expositionally preaching just means we go to a passage and we try and take out from that passage what's there and teach it. And we go to the next passage and we take out what's there and try and teach it. We do that week after week. One of the knocks against that type of preaching over and against kind of a topical preaching where most of the time you're finding a topic that the Bible says something about and bringing some verses in, okay, one of the knocks about expositional preaching is that it, it's obscure. Sometimes perhaps even boring. Fine. But I will tell you this. I can never imagine myself crafting a, tip, a topical sermon where I'm speaking with this pointedness about, uh, to encouraging believers who are experiencing persecution from people they love, friends and family who claim to be Christians, but they don't know what to do with that. And that's one of the reasons, this is my apologetic, my (laughs) advertisement for expositional preaching is that lo and behold, we find encouragements from the Bible that we never might have unearthed otherwise. 
Thank you, Luke, for visiting. Dang it. So no, we'll cut this. Matt, you've got to cut this section out of the sermon. Uh, Luke's visiting. Thank you for the amen. All right. We know Luke from back in the day. He's a good friend who's at another church. Um, verse 4. The faithfulness of the Lord is working among them. That's Paul's confidence, right? So this faithfulness of the Lord is not just some abstract idea. It's going to actually propel them into action. Propel them into action to pray. Propel them into like action that's protected from evil and the evil one and the wickedness of evil men. And it's also going to keep them doing every other thing that God requires. Look at what verse 4 says. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now, just leave it on the screen for a second. Paul doesn't say he has confidence in them mainly. He has confidence in them that they are doing and will do uh, the will of the Lord. He has confidence in the Lord that they will do those things. There's a difference. Right? He's looking at them saying, I I know you're... (laughs) battered by the wind, battered by the waves, and you're barely hanging on, but I'm confident in you because I'm confident in the one who holds on to you is faithful. And what Paul says of them, I would say of you, not because I look at you and think there's a bunch of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. I do think that about you, but I think that about you because of the way the Lord is powerfully working among us. I want to close our sermon just Cutting it off a little bit shorter here so we have time to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Let me read verse 5, which kind of will, will funnel us towards what I think we're supposed to learn and enjoy in the Lord's Supper. In verse 5, Paul begins by then praying for them. That's what this language of may. May the Lord, verse 5 begins. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I don't know a better way for the Lord to direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness in Christ than the preaching of the word culminating in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. I mentioned the story of the man who was being washed out to sea and then all of a sudden out of nowhere this life vest just floats up. He puts it on and he's saved. I I don't know what's going on in your week. I don't know the trials that are surrounding you. I know some of you, and I know some of your trials. But what I hope is through the gathering together with God's people, through the singing of songs and the praying of songs, and through the preaching of the word for the participating in the Lord's Supper, that I hope that the good news of the gospel would just float up to you like this life vest. You didn't see it coming, but man, I feel... I feel, I feel safe. I feel strong. I feel protected as I put on the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. There's that language in the Bible of putting on the Lord Jesus like clothing. That's some of the language the Apostle Paul uses a couple of times. It's just a metaphor. Paul's saying that as we trust in him, trust that Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he died for our sins. When he rose from the dead, he rose to new life, conquering sin and evil and death. And when we put our trust in him, Jesus' story becomes our story. It's like we've, we've put him on, like a life vest in a storm. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team come back up and then in a moment uh, I'll just kind of I'll give some directions about how we'll participate in communion together 
And then uh, the ushers can come forward, or the, the, those who are going to help um, pass out communion in just a moment, and then we'll participate together. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm somewhat sympathetic to this this guy. I don't remember his name. Who's just heard the warnings of hurricanes? I don't know, maybe his whole life and blew him off, and then all of a sudden it was real, and it all mattered. Lord, I pray for for those that are here, and maybe they've been around Christianity a long time, and it just wasn't real. It didn't matter. Lord, as it's becoming real and as they're putting faith in Christ, would you surround them? Would you be a shelter? Would you be a firm foundation? A rock beneath their feet, a life vest in a storm. It's just for them, for all of us, as we trust in you. And Lord, even now as we participate in communion together, would you direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ? We pray this in his awesome name. Amen.